My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Robert Mohall. Robert is the Vice President of Programming and Business Strategy for the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. I've done work for several years now with Kripalu and their RISE program, their mindfulness program, which is designed to bring mindfulness into high-stakes, high-stress work environments like healthcare, first responders, education, law enforcement. It's been a real blessing to do this work and to cross paths with people like Robert. And for those who are interested, Kripalu is navigating these critically important times with what I see as a high level of integrity. And you can find your way to their work at their website. But my conversation today with Robert is a deeply personal one. We dig into what it is to want love for others and to perform to receive that love and how to relate to that in a healthier way. We dig into the problems of our time through the lens of masculinity and the ways in which masculine energy can be amplified and distorted to produce a lot of the outcomes that we're seeing in society today. And we also dig into Robert's family history, raised in an incredibly unique environment in Ireland uh, with parents who were deeply committed to living for something greater than themselves and did their best in their own way to pass that on to, to Robert. So this is a, a beautiful conversation. And if that's not enough, you've got Robert's beautiful Irish accent. So this one is just a joy to sit back and listen to. And I trust that you will gain a lot from being in the presence of Robert. So... Let's get settled in and hear what Robert has for us. Robert, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks, Andy. Uh, it's great to have you here, man. Yeah, it's it's good to be here. I've listened to a few of the uh, previous episodes, and I like what you're building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. We had a chance uh, before we started recording to connect a bit, and... I'll say to those who are listening, what I said to you, I really appreciate the way that you, I encounter you as someone who lives very authentically, regardless of what chair you're sitting in. So you have a leadership role. We met in our work through Kapalu and the way you inhabit that chair, but also just the way you inhabit the chair as, as, as well as I know it as a father, as a partner, as a friend, as a practitioner who holds many communities of uh, practice in the worlds of mindfulness and spirituality. So there's this real kind of coherence 
that I, I experience when I'm around you that I really appreciate. And I'm excited to share that with people. Thank you. I hope I can uh, live up to that. <laughs> you better. The bar is high. Yeah, no, I've already got the pressure on my shoulders. I can feel it. Yeah, that's what I like to do at the start, at the start of these conversations. Just put as much yeah. pressure on as possible. <laughs> yeah, no. Good. It's, it's actually interesting you say that. Um, uh, so just before we started recording, we did a little guided, uh, you guided us to a little meditation. And um, I was just, no, I was noticing a very, very subtle pressure. I was like, whoa, what, what is that? I was like, hello, friend, you know, what is that? And it was this um, thing that's always there for me in the background, sometimes more loudly than others, but it's just this tiny little voice that's saying, I hope they love me. Mm. I hope they love me. Um, So I'll stay at the beginning that I already know that when I listen back to this, there'll be a part of me that will, you know, once it goes live, there'll be a part of me that goes, Oh, I wish I'd, I wish I just said it a little bit more like this or, or added this or, um, yeah, there's always just that little piece in me. It's been there from a very, very young age that, yeah. um, that there's a striving energy to it for sure. And that's been really helpful and useful, but it's also, um, uh, my, my wish for this conversation is, is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't hold me back in any way. Mm. Mm. I'm so glad you started there at, I can certainly relate to that. And I suspect a lot of people who listen to this will relate to that. There's something in this need to be loved that is primal. Yeah. I wonder, since you've invited that voice in in a, in a safe and caring way, I wonder, do you have any, as you sit with that wish that that part of you doesn't get in the way of an authentic conversation, I wonder, how do you work with that in your day-to-day life? I mean, how do you work, engage with that voice in other contexts? And yeah, wonder what we might learn from that as we start there. Yeah, it's been a really long, uh, wonderful journey. I'm, I'm 40 years old now. I just turned 40 uh, this year. And Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, for most, the vast majority of my life, I don't, I don't think I was consciously paying attention to that little voice and urging at all um at a very very sort of healthy and beautiful upbringing very unique in ireland um very unique i think for anybody in the world but also extremely unique for the irish setting of the early 1980s and um but all very loving and healthy you know completely with all of its conditioning because you get that whether it's a loving family or not um but uh i had this this moment that I always remember this moment. Um, and I thought my parents did a beautiful job as parents. Uh, we were on a camping trip as a family and I think they had bought me a tennis racket and I probably hit like the tennis ball twice over the net now successfully. <laughs> so I was, I don't know, I was probably five years old or something, maybe six. And I remember sitting in the back of the car and sort of leaning forward into the front of the car and my, both my parents, uh, we were probably, you know, at this stage, they had three kids. There's four of us now in total. But they were probably, I don't know, unbelievably just like worn out from a couple of <laughs> already. And I lean forward and I just say, so do you think I could play at Wimbledon? <laughs> and, uh, and that came from, there was two pieces to that. When I look back on that sort of question, there was two 
pieces to that question. One was this unbelievable sense of like, like inner sense of, you know, beauty and greatness and capacity and opportunity in the world and um, all of what's possible and why not? I'm five. I don't know anything about, you know, all of that sort of innocence and imagination and, uh, you know, the world is mine, is a playground for me. All of this you know, beautiful sort of uh, movement, but then in a very unconscious way, and I think pretty naturally for a five-year-old, hopefully, um, was this, and will you love me? You know, behind that question, yeah. was a little percentage of it was, you know, maybe if I aspire to something like that, you too will love me. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe if the world's attention, the world would love me. And um, yeah, so uh, so that's, you know, it's been there since some of the earliest memories for me, for sure. Uh, and now, you know, it's still, it, it plays a part. And I spent, I think, a long time sort of in my practices in a, in a, not so great way, really kind of trying to, you know, hold it at bay and um, sort of that Buddhist idea of, you know, grasping and aversion. So real, real sense of aversion towards that there was that need inside of me. Mm. It was like, oh, that's a, that's a weakness. Um, You know, that need to have any dependency on anybody else. And, you know, that's very built into certainly the white, my understanding of it, of the white Western uh, Christian culture, particularly in the United States where I now live, and this sort of independence, you know, it is me on my own. And there's so many, that's a very rich conversation that we get into. It leads to so many problems. Uh, So at some point it kind of woke up and I, it was this idea that, I could start to see that my whole life, everything in my life was moving and almost everything I did had two sides to it. And it wasn't that one side was better or worse. It was just that there was a new sense of wholeness to everything that I was doing. And one side of it, this might be an oversimplification, but one side of it felt truly selfless. It was, you know, I wanted to help people. And so I, I did, you know, helpful things and I did a career that was, you know, a lot of it was around service, et cetera. And then what was coming more into the con- into my consciousness was actually within that was this inherent self-serving movement. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily selfish, uh, but just a self-serving, protective, because if I do this, I'll be seen as the good guy or the nice guy. And therefore, those that I love, that say they love me, will stay in love with me and they'll stay close to me. And this whole avoiding of um, rejection and abandonment and aloneness. Uh, so that's kind of just even noticing that that was what was suddenly going on felt like a huge threshold that I walked through and that, that awareness now has just can't, I can't see it ever closing down. I can see it everywhere. Um, and when I have, and then obviously with that awareness, I don't always then have the sort of the skillful means or the self-management to really respond in the moment and um, with that self-awareness. But when I do, there's kind of four things that I often do. See if I can remember them. One is very simply saying something like, when my mind is sort of saying these things in a very subtle way or trying to, and that energy is present, I'll just go, 
oh, thank you. Mm. Right now. Mm. Um, or another phrase I love is, it's okay, sweetheart. Mm. It's okay. Um, and then another one, because and then sometimes it can be so strong. Sometimes it's just a real direct no. It's just like, no, in a loving way, but it's no. Like you might, you know, if you're speaking to one of your, your four-legged friends or, um, or even a young child or whatever, it's just like a, you're trying to stop them from doing something where they might harm themselves or somebody else. Yeah. Love, it's no. Uh, and then the final one is, you know, change the radio station. <laughs> you know, radio Roberts is telling this story of, if I don't do this, these people won't love me. If I show up to this, if I don't, if I show up to this um, conversation that we're having now, and I say things that you know expose me in a more vulnerable way, um, then I might you know lose connection with people and, or lose love. People that like all your listeners, I'm never going to meet these people, but it's still there, right? Yeah. So I might lose that connection. So while that's present, can I just go? Play with my, it's okay, sweetheart, or thank you, but not right now, or no. And then the final one is just simply, Robert, you're loved. Yeah. You're loved right now. You're loved. And he loves you. Yeah. Right? Anonymous listener number two might even love you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but my mother loves me. You know, my, my sister loves me. My wife loves me. My child loves me. Um, I spent a lot of time in nature yesterday. I had a real sense of being loved by nature. Mm. You know, and that hasn't stopped. That hasn't stopped from yesterday. It hasn't stopped from this morning. But just that little, little fear, you know, kind of rises up. So that's, that's some of the things that I play with um, mm-hmm. to try to help. I help was. Soothe, help soothe that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. And. It brought up so much for me. I, I immediately, when you shared your four ways in, I, I immediately thought of my two and a half year old daughter. We were out uh, also in nature recently near a farm and that farm had an electric fence. And I had mm-hmm. to say to her, you know, sometimes the response is, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for showing me that, you know, mm-hmm. and the two, sometimes the response is like, it's okay, sweetie. It's okay. Yeah. This was like, no, 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 no. Like, don't go touch that electric mm-hmm. fence because you will be really bummed out if you do that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I just was like, she started walking towards it, like, no, 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 no. And she kind of like, yeah. whoa, because I don't use that move a lot. Yeah. But, but it was a yes. it, sort of way in which I, what, so what's coming through to me as you describe those first three steps, those first three moves are, they're done with a real love mm-hmm. for that part of you that is not the 40-year-old Robert who's lived through all of this. It's yeah. that five-year-old Robert who is still wants to play at Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's just, it's just a wonderfully, wonderfully different and healing and cathartic way to relate to that mm-hmm. part that, that, as you noted, in many white and masculine and Christian and all, some combination of all three traditions yeah. The, the default response is not only no, but no with anger and, and repression. Yeah. It's almost like we can't even look at that because to yeah. look at that would be to admit weakness. 
Yeah. So thank you for giving that that gift of just how you're relating to that voice. Yeah, sure. The the fourth strategy, what do you call it? Change the radio station. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to me to be there's something there that's not quite parental. Mm. Like the first three evoked my daughter for me, but the fourth one evoked something else. And I'm just trying to get a feel for what it was. I was out, you mentioned being in nature. I was out, out hiking recently and, and this was maybe a month ago and we're here and both of us are in Massachusetts. We're still weathering the shelter in place, although we're at whatever phase we're at and people are all relating to it differently. But I'm, I'm relating to it with a pregnant wife and a two-year-old daughter with a real sense of like, I want to yeah. find ways to connect with people, but I'm also going to keep my physical distance. Mm-hmm. So I'm out, I'm out hiking and I see this person on a distant trail. There's kind of a gap between us. I'm up on one little peak and, and they're up on another. They're walking their dog. And we can see each other, but they're about as big as my finger if I hold it up in mm-hmm. my eyes. And right as I felt the impulse to wave to them, they lifted their hand and they waved to me. And there was just this sense of being greeted mm-hmm. that I didn't realize how badly I needed that. Yeah. And I, I felt like it changed the radio station for me. It was just like this yeah. way in which we can simply, without, without any managing or fixing, or just to simply, I see you. Yeah. Right. And we can do that for each other and we can do that for ourselves. And that can be incredibly cathartic and empowering. Yeah. And um, so now I can catch... So I don't have to listen later and go, oh, I wish I'd said this. I, it, I caught it now in this moment, which is great. Uh, you just sharing that back was in many ways the first two, the, you know, thank you, but not right now, or it's okay, sweetheart. And then to a degree, the no uh, strategy, but the first two are a witnessing. Mm. Real witnessing, like it's the wave. And what I did for you know, the first X number of years of my life was the fourth strategy, which was change the radio station. And I think there's so much out there that's just change the radio station. Mm. Any of the witnessing, mm. any of the, um, oh, what's really here? Like what is really here that needs attention? And it's the combination of those things that I think is the powerful. It's the wholeness approach to that, that for me feels really powerful and no longer feels like there's something that's sort of being missed or brushed over. Um, yeah. yeah. So that it's the, it's the combination of those that I think actually is why it, I find it so helpful for me. It's almost as if that part of you that you're connecting with a part that wants to be loved is going to be a lot more receptive to changing the radio station because he's recognizing that, that you're seeing and witnessing and and lovingly saying no when you need to yeah. that that in the same way we if someone if someone we don't know or don't trust comes in and says you the way you're thinking about this is wrong yeah. we're going to give them the big metaphorical middle finger and say like thanks but no thanks i like this radio station yeah <laughs> and the, and there's a whole lot of stuff you know in the the self-help world and the you know, in the spiritual world and um, spiritual industry that there's a lot of people that are just, you know, focused on change the radio station. It's Mm. just think positive thoughts. Mm. It's like, look, I'm Irish. 
you ever listen to an Irish song or an Irish poem? <laughs> they are not just positive thoughts. It's the fullness of humanity. And I think that's, you know, why else are we here except for the fullness of humanity to experience being fully human in all of this limitless capacity for joy and happiness and connection and love and creativity, as well as like our bottomless capacity for sadness and grief. Mm. Um, tomorrow it'll be, see if I, you know, tomorrow it'll be the fourth anniversary of my father's passing. And, um, mm. The two weeks beforehand of his passing were an incredibly, incredibly potent and transformational and um, challenging two weeks. And so the two weeks beforehand have there's just this like sort of perfume of that mm. imprint of those two weeks in the buildup. So I've been noticing that um, in the last two weeks. And well, it doesn't make these two weeks easy. I'm just, there's such a, a subtle gratitude for that. It's just like, yeah, this is, this is part of what it means to be human. Mm. I don't just want, don't just want the Disney version of being human. I don't also just want the dystopian version of being human. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I think certainly part of my conditioning was, you know, sort of look towards the light and not towards the shadow. Mm. Um, but if you actually look at, you know, um, Celtic wisdom and Celtic practitioners, like the, the Celtic New Year starts um, yeah, in the winter. Mm. Like the Jewish day starts when the sun goes down. There's something about the In some of these old traditions, they actually started in the darkness. Mm. Seen as a bad thing. In darkness wasn't a bad thing. Um, and uh, something powerful about you know, being willing to go in and down as opposed to sort of up and out with our energy and our way of being. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I love the, uh, there's so much there. One, thank you for sharing a bit of your father with us. What was his name? Uh, well, he was, he was christened Kevin Shane Mulhall. Um, and his Mulhall was, is the, colonized English version because they couldn't pronounce it. It was Moy Cahal, which mm. is the course of St. Cahal, who was a seventh century monk um, who ended up in Italy um, treating, uh, I think, treating people um, uh, that had the plague, interestingly. Oh. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he christened Kevin Shane Mulhall, but was always known as Shane um, in Ireland, certainly back when he was born in 1950. Uh, everybody would have been named after a saint. Yeah. 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 Wow. I get the sense, uh, and, and we don't have to go too far down this path if it doesn't speak to you, but I get the sense that he was a really positive and powerful force in your life. Is that right? Yeah, um, for sure. He, uh, very beautiful man, very human man. Um, so he was, he was a very powerful force in my life. Um, not always positive, mm. never intentionally negative, <laughs> mm. Mm. but I was a boy and a teenager and a, a young man and all of those things. So all that comes with the father son relationship was always there. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he directed my life in some really beautiful ways. He, um, you know, when I was a young teenager, he was like, 
here's Martin Luther King's sermons. Here's a book about Gandhi. This is who Nelson Mandela was. Um, and he just put this, uh, he put this content in front of me. And I asked him about it one day and he said, when I was born, he held me in his arms and he said the first, and then the first thing that came to his heart when he held me was that I was so open as a, as a little infant that he knew I would absorb whatever was poured into me. Mm. So he only wanted to give me the best. He only wanted to then pour the best into me. And so he strived to do that. And with myself and my three sisters. And um, that meant like a very young sort of introduction to meditation and uh, Indian scriptures and uh, teachings of Plato and Socrates and uh, the sort of more mystical teachings of Jesus and um, all of this wonderful stuff. Um, But also then, you know, sort of this introduction to wisdom, but then also introduction to beauty and Da Vinci and Mozart and Beethoven and um, as well as an introduction to service um, through Dr. King and Mandela and Mother Teresa and so many other people. Um, so it was this incredible, like off, you know, off the record kind of education and exposure mm-hmm. through my father um, and a lot of beautiful mentoring. He gave the best advice um, towards the end. It would became so impossible for him to let go of giving advice. It was very interesting to watch that. Mm. But um, yeah, I remember a moment in our, I'll just share one more. Uh, he, when I was, he was going to give a, uh, a sort of a talk in England and we were, I think we were sneaking in a Manchester United game when he was going, because we were going up towards the North of England. So we got tickets to see Manchester United and both of us were diehard fans. Uh, it's been a rough few years at the moment, but we're mm. hoping for season in September <laughs> he, uh, but he said um, I was reading a book uh, Joseph Jaworski's book on synchronicity I just started to um, with a group of friends we had just started to run transformational leadership programs around the world and uh, I was reading this book and was very touched by Joseph Jaworski's story with his father and how he kind of deepened his connection with him and so I, I read that and sort of closed the book and then I turned to my dad and I just said dad I love you he said, thank you. <laughs> Dad, I love you. Went, Me too. Went, no, Dad, I love you. And he said, love you too, son. And then I said, we're going to be a hugging father and son. And we're no longer going to shake hands. We're going to hug. And he said, okay. <sighs> and then we practiced. We had a practice hug on the bus. <sighs> it was uh, clunky and awkward um, but it was something something shifted in our relationship I think in that moment to a um, not just one of uh, mentoring of the mind but um, truly connecting in the heart as well so when he passed it was a I know he lost uh, I was his best friend and so he lost you know his best friend in, in form and I lost one of my best friends for sure hmm. Oh, man. That was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I have a sense you used uh, the phrase like of sort of pouring in, mm-hmm. like he was doing his best to pour everything into you. And 
seems to me in that moment you were pouring something back to him that was a really wonderful gift for a son to give a father. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> I, um, you said something earlier that I thought we could circle back to, which is the sort of moving, can't quite remember how you phrased it, but it was something like kind of moving into and down instead mm. of, there's this way in which we're always seeking to ascend or to wake up. Yeah. But I've heard the phrase before, waking down. Like we mm. need to start to connect with the, that, that which, which Jung might have called our shadow. And, mm. I, and I've heard you use that phrase a couple of times too, shadow. And I wonder if we could, we could play with that a bit more, that theme of light and dark. Does that sound Yeah. Good? Yeah. And um, even the words, uh, you know, we're so conditioned uh, in the West, I'm so conditioned to think of like it's, you know, I'm embarrassed to say it. There's so much conditioning around even the word like dark. And, you know, we're in this time in America. Yes. Yeah. It's having this very, very important conversation, which I hope moves way beyond conversation into sustained transformational action. Um, but around Black Lives Matter and systemic racism and um, how people like myself and yourself can become anti-racists, etc. And so this whole that idea of like shadow, you can hear it when people say it. And I've said it before in certain circumstances and people are like, well, you know, there's like an aversion to even the word shadow. And I think impl- implicit in that is because there's a quality of darkness to it and because of our very unbiased connections to you know, darkness and blackness and mm. racist uh, biases, etc. So, um, I remember I was like, "Oh, should we? You know, should you know? Should we change? Should the word shadow change?" And I was like, "No, like this is well, maybe I don't know, but where I kind of stand on this is like that's not that's not the real work. The real work is for white people, particularly I think uh, white sort of uh, liberal people to wake up. Right? That's a, that's our work and the waking up of that is certainly down and in yeah. and into the shadow in its beauty. Like there's so much beauty in the shadow. Um, it is this, for me, it's a well of beauty. Um, it's a, it, it's a pretty scary place at times, but there's a beauty in it. And shadow is not just, I think it's often used as just what's like our sort of in quotes, negative sides mm. or your anger or your shame or, um, your fear, that's all your shadow. But it's also, you know, the Marion Williamson Nelson Mandela used at his um, inauguration is that it's not our, um, it's our lightness, right? That sort of frightens us most, not our darkness. And it's power. And that's all, I think that's sitting in our shadow. And that's why we have so much of, I think what we have in our, in our collective right now is, is that we are, we are not tending to the richness and the wholeness of, of what's unconscious and what's in the shadow. We're not diving down and in, into that well, to see the gifts of both our shame and our fear, my shame, my fear, um, as well as my, my brilliance and my gifts and my um, limitlessness. Mm. Um, it really does feel like it. I keep doing this with my hand, but this sort of like, down the body, down the central channel of the body, down into the depths. And there's a few uh, 
teachers that I've studied with and their meditations are all about bringing the energy down through the body, down into the pelvic bowl, like down low belly, but even further down into the pelvic bowl and just sitting there. And almost like that there's actually a kind of a bowl there and can the attention sort of pool there. And then in that resting can, then there's can be this sort of sense of that sort of not shattering really in a dramatic way, um, but becoming more permeable to what many traditions might call, you know, the primordial ground, that mm. is that, that both total emptiness and nothingness, no thingness, that is where all things arise from. Uh, and so I think there's, I personally find an incredible benefit in going down. Um, and it also feels like it's just in a very practical way, the movement of the energy down and the inquiry down, uh, both into the shadow, but into the body as well, is creates an incredible anchoring and stability. Yeah. So that as life brings all of its, all of its wonderful movements as it, as it naturally should, um, as the ripples move back and forth, you know, from all of our actions in, in, in life. And I can be with those ripples um, and they can be with me. And, but it's from a place of not like statue, again, like ignoring anything or just sort of like cowboying up. I used to live in Colorado. That was a phrase that they used there. Um, the phrase I grew up with as a kid was like, especially I think men get a lot of this. Um, but like, are you a man or a mouse kind of feeling? Yeah. You just kind of man up. But it, but from something that's, it's beneath that. It's beneath that sort of battening down the hatches kind of feel, this soldier up. It's beneath that. It's to a true anchoring and a true connection with a ground that doesn't move. Yeah. Um, I think the Zen Buddhists often call it like the Iron Mountain. Mm-hmm. Iron Mountain. Huh. Like, what if I could feel an Iron Mountain in my belly, in my pelvic bowl, and then move in the world from there? Could I, could I hold an Iron Mountain in the rest of this conversation? Oh, that is a wonderful, powerful invitation. And there's so much in what you just shared. I can feel parts of me like, not anchored in that iron mountain who want to <laughs> who want to get into the concepts and 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 you know there's a, a whole conversation around the systemic work and the and the mm. racial justice work there's also this this conversation we could have just about what it is to become more aware of our body and the, and the literal energy moving through our body that that exists well below the neck right yeah. But I want to maybe just take a moment to sit with that and see what feels like the most Iron Mountain question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm noticing, um, and this theme has now come up a couple times in our conversation, but there's there's something about the way in which uh, what we might call masculinity or masculine energy emerges as almost a, a, a stand-in or a substitute or a pale imitation of that much deeper 
more powerful ground that you're attempting to speak to. And I wonder if we could play with that, mm-hmm. that particular facet of this jewel you've just handed us. Cause it seems to me that much of the problems that we look at, that we're seeing when we look at out in the world today have, have something to do with the way that that masculine energy has sort of been contorted to be a, a kind of cardboard cut out of itself. It's like yeah. very two dimensional. The phrase yeah. man up mm-hmm. is very two dimensional. And what you're talking about is much more deep and three dimensional. So I'm wondering what that brings up for you as I, as I mirror that back. Yeah. Well, immediately, I think the, I mean, connected to the Iron Mountain, the sort of masculine energy, that sort of understanding of masculinity, which I, I certainly grew up with. I grew up, as I said, you know, we're a really beautiful father, but, you know, and a, a father that didn't break the, the, gener- the generational gender norms of his generation. Uh, so grew up with all of that sort of subtle conditioning as well. And in Ireland, which, you know, in the 1980s, which had, you know, some very, very narrow-minded thinking about women and about um, friends in the LGBTQ community, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that, that's the masculinity that we're talking about. What I would say is that unhealthy expression of what can be a beautiful, sacred masculinity. Yeah. Um, so a, a sort of a two-dimensional or even sometimes just a one-dimensional, a very narrowed expression of um, healthy and sacred masculinity, that would try to create the Iron Mountain. Mm. Mm. It would be like, okay, now project. I'm going to take <laughs> on, on Iron Mountain in my body and I'm going to like live from there and it's a challenge and let's go. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to notice when I fail and I'm going to stuff that. And I'm going to feel shame around that. I'm going to stuff that. I'm going to fear that and compare that everybody else is doing that, but I'm going to stuff that. And, um, yeah, so that's how I think the sort of that very, very slim slice of healthy masculinity shows up in our world and how it would approach this. And I think it's much more of, um, I don't know if it's, mature masculinity or if it's mature femininity or it's just sort of um a matureness that holds both and that um for me more and more i just keep coming back to wholeness as the path for all of these things mm-hmm. um, that's what buddha was talking about when he talked about the middle path was he hinting at wholeness as well um but this idea of yeah can i sit and be with the fact that that Iron Mountain is completely present and available, and yet I may not have accessed it or I may not be accessing it in this moment. And can I just, can there be space for that? You know, can I have space in this moment, in my heart, in my mind, in my body, to be, to have the desire to be somewhere and not to be there? Hmm. I think the, the way masculinity is showing up in our world and shows up in me um, in unhealthy ways is this. We're moving so fast. We're just mm. 
so fast. I think everybody feels that, but we're talking about men. So I'll just kind of talk about men in a generalized way. And then I'll try to keep making it personal. I move very fast through life. Um, And that's a great gift that I can move fast through life. Um, But there are, I notice the moments when I'm moving too fast for the moment. Mm. I'm present to the moment. And those are the moments when, uh, when then shame or fear is running the show. And what then shows up usually is attention and a holding, like a, a stoic holding. That's when the mm-hmm. comes in, like the unhealthy stoicism comes in and I, I become the, the soldier. And, and then my beautiful wife will say, hey, can we talk about, you know, your schedule on Saturday? <laughs> and the part of me that just wants to like be free and like run through the wilderness as kind of a wild man um, in that moment doesn't, doesn't know how to be in relationship. Like literally does not know, does not know how to be, to still be open to this beautiful woman and her very simple and innocent ask about my schedule. And And me to be holding this tension, usually in my chest, um, and underneath that shame because I'm feeling tension, because I feel therefore, oh well, now I'm weak because I'm not in the Iron Mountain space. Mm. Mm. Fake the Iron Mountain, maybe. <laughs> and uh, she just she either gets like a a stoic kind of like let's get through this quickly response or she gets um, like an edge that she doesn't need. It's never anything much more than an edge, but uh, yeah. And then, um, you know, I feel like I do quite a lot of work around this stuff. And then, and then, but if I hadn't had that, if I hadn't had, you know, if I hadn't had my father, if I hadn't had all that exposure, if all that great stuff hadn't poured into me, I don't know what kind of man I would be. Mm. Oh, what my life would look like. Um, I feel a real sadness for men who are struggling, um, and they're and they really are struggling. Um, as are a lot of women. As are a lot of, as are, I think, as is everybody. I think people are feeling really kind of lost, and we're in this time of, you know, huge uncertainty. Um, and I, I, I feel like it's a huge a time of huge mystery as well. Feels very uncertain, but it's also very mysterious. And um, I think the Irish poet in me loves the sort of mystery of it. But the the kid that wants to play in Wimbledon doesn't like the uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, we if men are not, you know, I'll make a, I'll say this like it's true. I don't know if it's true, but I'll just speak like it is. If men don't do this work as a society we're in real trouble mm. like we're in real trouble right now mm. um what that doesn't mean is it ha- doesn't take away the incredible possibility for something different but the real fact of this matter right now is we are in real trouble yes and um men are not the solution 
And they are not the only part of the problem, um, but they have to, we have to do our work. Yeah. We have to do our work. Um, and we have to make amends um, in all the ways that we have hurt, um, in all the ways that we have hurt humanity and in all the ways that we've led the hurting. And so I, I hold that as like a real, you know, this is the, the part of the Irish song where you're like, oh gosh, is the person ever getting out of prison? <laughs> will, will he find his love again? And I, I don't know what it is, but I've never stopped believing in the capacity of the human being and in our individual and collective capacity for for greatness, for great joy, for great love, for great compassion, for great community, uh, for great creativity. Like just even though we show up at our worst, that does not diminish our capacity to be great. Mm. Um, but we have very dedicated work to do in order for us to live into something beautiful. And I think because this time is of great uncertainty it like certainly in the 40 short years i've been here it feels like my parents might say something different my mom might say something differently but uh, it just doesn't feel like in this in recent history we've lived in such a time of of mystery mm-hmm. the late 1960s had all the elements of incredible revolution and obviously world war ii and world war one and were times of great, great uncertainty, but I don't know. I feel, I feel like there's something else here that we're being called into and that we're certainly not in control of. And I don't know what's in control of that, but something we're being called to something. And therefore, therefore I hold this, not hope, um, but I hold this, this belief and knowing that we can use this moment to create a more beautiful world. Mm. Mm. And the reason I say not hope, um, uh, there's something about, I love the word hope, uh, but it also indicates, uh, for me, it's just very personally, it indicates uh, there's a slight non-acceptance of this moment in hope. For me, just in how I hold that word. Uh, so I, I come back to the word of trust or faith. And a lot of people, faith is a hard word for them to hold. So I don't hold it in the way that we kind of collectively hold it. It's, it is, yeah, for me, it's a faith that comes from being truly in this moment. Um, in all of its, in all of its ugly and all of its beauty. I think there was a, it's a beautiful, a good article. I can't remember if it was Jim Collins wrote it. I think it was published in the Harvard Business Review. And um, mm. let's go five levels of leadership. Uh, triumph of uh, humility and fierce resolve. Uh, it's a good one. And he, uh, I think it's James Maddox, was a Vietnam, uh, prisoner of war, right? The American prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he talked about the like the Maddox paradox, which was this the paradox of being so grounded in your reality 
so accepting of how terrible this situation is, James Maddox being, if that's his name, as a prisoner of war in a Vietnam jungle, he'd say, this is, is, this is like pretty bad stuff. And then at the same time holding um, that a brighter future is possible. And something, um, I think this is a, a Maddox paradox moment for us all. Mm-hmm. If we, mm-hmm. But if we don't hold the reality, we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to do what we've always done, which is, oh, that bit's hard. That bit's sticky. That bit's, we'll deal with that bit later. Let's yeah. deal with the, the low-hanging fruit, the shiny object, the quick fix, the trend. It's just like, I don't, I don't know why we do that, how we've trained ourselves to move in that way, but um, we seem to apply the same things to all of our problems and we don't really move them forward. We move the furniture around a lot, but we don't really dig in. I'm so, like, South Africa, I did a lot of work in South Africa around uh, doing transformational leadership programs and you know, part of my own personal study was reading um, Archbishop Tutu's, Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. And look, South Africa is not, um, you know, it's still got so many problems, right? Like every country has. Um, I think it was unfair of us to expect it to be this utopian society out there. Yeah. But the, what they did with that Truth and Reconciliation Commission was just so incredible. They, it's back to this, they, they went down and in. Mm-hmm. They mm. went and all the way in. Mm. Like they pulled no punches in that. Um, and they witnessed that. Mm. They didn't just build a plaque or, you know, do a footnote. This was, this was the whole country was invested in this process in some way. And it was all, all of what was, um, all that was in the shadow was exposed. And what was exposed was like horrendous crimes and horrendous like treatment of other beautiful human beings. And then at the same time, what came to light from that shadow was also this capacity of the human being to forgive and to yeah. love. Um, and that's what comes out of that well. Um, and I think we just, we get scared of the word shadow. Uh, to be honest, I think it's because we're uh, the dominant culture's white. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I, I have, a pray, I have a prayer for um, us as a collective that we, we go down and in um, and we go all the way down and in. We stay there for as long as it takes um, because if we don't hang out there, we try to come up a second too early for air um, because it feels uncomfortable um, or because the path is not clear or because we don't think we're individually responsible. Um, then we're not going to we're not going to be free. We're not going to have a freedom, an inner freedom or an outer freedom. Mm. Mm. Doing this, you know, we're doing this recording just around the 4th of July. And um, as an, as an immigrant, but as a white person, I would be called an expat. Yes, that's right. Right. What a, yeah. Um, but I'm as an immigrant to this country, like I really reflect on the holidays in America and uh, Ireland has no independence day um, because some people in Ireland and say, well, there's parts of Ireland that are not independent. Uh, but America has an independence day. And I just go, what is that? 
Like, what does that even mean now? What does that mean? And what does that mean? Who does that, who does, who is that independence really relevant for in America now? What, what would it take for us to, yeah. What's the work that we can do together um, so that maybe not the next 4th of July, but at some point on the 4th of July, it truly feels like freedom. Mm. Mm. <sighs> it's awesome, man. Thank you. Get up in my soapbox. Okay, I'm down. No. Well, I'm glad you got up. There's so much in there and we have about five minutes left, so I can't underline it all. But your invitation into a world where we can be with all of the parts of ourself as individuals and also the parts of ourselves as a collective that we try and push away to actually be with that as a path towards wholeness. Ah, I could, if I had, if I could just have some way to like put that, that momentum that I'm feeling right now, into people's hearts and minds, I would, because I sense that that is at the root of so much where we get stuck. Well, I'll say, I'll invite you to put it low in your belly. Yes, thank you. So then you move with that. Yeah. When you speak with people. Yeah. And they'll resonate with that. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea, Adyashanti is one of my, um, one of my, uh, favorite teachers and he he's kind of a, uh, he wouldn't he changes some of his self-description now but originally zen and sort of non-dual but kind of beyond all of all of those labels and he just said you know we spend so much of our time trying to be free from something mm. um, he says this is about awakening and evolving as a human being it's about being free too being free to be afraid, being free to cry, being free to grieve, being free to miss the mark. Um, can we be free in all of us, not just in the parts that sound great or, or feel nice? Um, we have such a, an avoidance of discomfort. I have such an avoidance of discomfort, physical, mental, emotional. But I know that's my path. When I feel discomfort, I'm like, oh, this is... My three centers of wisdom, my body, my mind, and my heart are always telling me stuff or whispering in some way. And then sometimes there's this fourth whisper that seems to be just outside of my sense of self. Um, and sometimes it's very audible. Nature sometimes has that voice. And then sometimes it's just a, it's like it, it arises internally, but it's not in my, it's not in my accent. And it just, it speaks to something. And for me, that, being able to listen to that is so has been so powerful in my life and my ability to hear it comes from that going down and in and having that stillness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be quiet enough inside that um, and be humble enough inside to be able to hear something that's outside of my sense of self. Mm. Wow. Here's to going down and in. And here's to the freedom to be whole that only comes if we can go down and in. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. This has been a delight. Really appreciate how you brought yourself to this space and your father and your own journey. 
as someone committed to contributing to a world where all of us can be whole. It's such a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. For people listening, if they want to find you, if you're comfortable sharing, is there a place online they should come and learn more about your work or what you're up to? Uh, like really, um, my primary offerings is just through my full-time work at Kapalu. Um, I've been uh, doing a little bit of mindfulness meditation, uh, offering a little bit of mindfulness meditation on the side as part of a program that I'm involved in. Um, but if people want to connect, uh, Robert Mulhall on LinkedIn or on any of the social media, I'm happy just to connect and be in conversation with anybody. I'm very, just very open sense to life. Wonderful. Well, thank you, sir. I'm wishing you all the best. I can't wait until our paths cross the next, maybe even in three dimensions as opposed to this yeah. virtual medium. But until that time comes, I'm grateful for the other space and I can't wait to share it. And remember the Iron Mountain as your baby is being born. <laughs> yeah yeah thank you all right thanks everyone for tuning in it's been a pleasure thanks for tuning in to the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me andy cahill with support from kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from john nolan at middle mountain studios the theme song was written and performed by todd marston you can find the wonder dome wherever pods are casted If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.